Well, this, this passage in front of us today is an example of God's providential sovereign hand working in the life of David. David's going to make a mistake. I'm going to try to build the case for that. Yet God is still going to sovereignly, providentially use his life. David is going to come under the cursing of someone else, a trial, yet God is going to sovereignly, providentially use the cursing to produce good in David's life. There is going to be a battle for counsel between a man named Hushai and a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel will have the counsel that would be detrimental to David. Hushai will have counsel that is beneficial to David. And Hushai's counsel is going to win. This is an example of the sovereign, providential hand of God in the affairs of humanity. And then David, as he's running from Jerusalem, is going to be provided for by some businessmen who come and bring lots of goods and supplies to David and his soldiers as they're running from Jerusalem. And this is an example of the sovereign providential uh, provision of God taking care of his man. What, what we're looking at in this little episode is God working, God moving, God uh, taking care of his person. And kind of the, the, the thought in my mind through all of this uh, really comes from the book of Acts chapter 27 and 28. In that section of scripture, uh, Paul the apostle believed because the Lord told him that he would someday preach the gospel in front of Caesar. And with that belief in his heart, I think what he thought was, I'm going to someday volunteer myself and I'm going to buy a ticket and I'm going to go to Rome. We know that's the case because he actually told the Roman church, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, then I'm going to go to Spain, and on my way to Spain, I'm going to stop and visit you, the church in Rome. He, he thought he was going to, of his own volition, get to Rome. But when he went to Jerusalem, his whole plan exploded. He got arrested by the religious leaders. They threw him in prison. And the Romans, because they saw this uproar that Paul had caused, they put him in prison and they held him for a couple of years. Uh, not in Rome, but in a city called Caesarea, thousands of miles from Rome. So Paul, at that point in his life, he could have wondered, is God really in control? Is God really going to get me to Caesar? So after a couple of years, he finally exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Rome. And so he did. He said, I appeal to Caesar. And so they took him on a boat ride to Rome. And on the way there, there was this whole fiasco, a shipwreck and thrown into the sea and all of that. But through it all, Paul had counseled them. We should stay here. We shouldn't go and all these different things. But eventually, even though they ignored him, even though they made a mistake, God spoke to Paul through an angel and said, don't be afraid. You are going to get to Rome. This is what Paul actually said, to, to quote him directly, Acts 27, verse 24 and 25. He said to everyone there, he said, do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So then Paul said to them, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. That's kind of where I got the, the title for this message, those phrases from Paul. Do not be afraid, take heart, and have faith in God. Uh, there was just this confidence that grew in him that God is in control. In the midst of all of this chaos, God is in control. And sure enough, all 276 people on that boat with him were delivered 
they were saved, and Paul eventually got to Rome because God was sovereignly, providentially working in his life. All right, so that's what we're going to see in David this morning. We're going to see God working and moving even when you know, David failed and even when it seemed like chaos was unfolding. So the first thing that happened is in verse 1 through 4. Let's read it together. It says, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Now, some of you were gone last week for Labor Day. You were traveling or whatever, and you're kind of wondering, like, now what's happening here? Last time I was here in church, David was in Jerusalem, and now he's leaving Jerusalem on his way out of the city. What happened last week was that Absalom, his son, had turned the hearts of the people of Israel, the men of Israel, stolen their hearts and had come into Jerusalem proclaiming himself as David's replacement, the next king. And rather than fight him, David decided to run with some of his trusted servants out into the wilderness. And what we saw last week is that a few loyal servants came with him, the priests, a guy named Hushai that we'll see later in this passage, uh, Ittai, the Gittite, a mercenary Philistine warrior. But there were also some enemies who came to him. And some people who, it takes a little bit of time to kind of figure out what is their motive. And this first one is this guy, Ziba. Uh, Ziba was a servant of a man named Mephibosheth. Now, this is kind of going back to the beginning of summer. But you might remember that there was a point where David, when he became king in Israel, he wanted to show kindness to the former king Saul's uh, offspring. And so we asked around, is there any descendant of Saul, particularly his son Jonathan, anywhere in Israel? And somebody reported there is one son of Jonathan that remains. He's a, a, a man who was injured when he was just a little boy, uh, crippled in his feet, and he's been in hiding ever since. His name is Mephibosheth. And so David called Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth thought for his whole life that David was out to kill him. So he comes to David in fear and trepidation. And David announces to him, I want you to sit at my table. Me and your father, we were best friends. You're going to sit at my table. You're going to eat from my supply and abundance. And I'm going to give you a servant named Ziba to take care of your grandfather Saul's land, which now belongs to you. So this same guy, Ziba, comes years later. David's on the run. He's leaving. And Ziba, the servant, not Mephibosheth, but Ziba comes to David. And he's got all this stuff with him. Donkeys, bread, raisins, summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Okay, so you guys tracking with all these names? Are you impressed with my pronunciation of all these names? Okay. So the king said to Ziba, verse 2, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where is your master's son? So where's Mephibosheth? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. So, so Ziba's there with all this stuff, and David says, hey, you know, where's Saul's son? Where's Mephibosheth? 
And Ziba says, well, he's back in Jerusalem. He heard about this whole uprising, uproar, Absalom, the trumpet blast, Absalom's king, you know, you're running and fleeing and everything. And he began thinking to himself that the kingdom was going to be restored to the household of Saul. That's what he's thinking. So I left him and I've come to you with all this stuff. So David hears that. He thinks Mephibosheth has betrayed me. I mean, that's a cold-blooded thing to do, right? He put Mephibosheth at his table. He provided for him. He took care of him. And how does Mephibosheth thank him? By turning from him or on him in his hour of need. So notice what David does in verse 4. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage, let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. That was another way of saying thank you, I'll take it. All right, now that's the whole episode, at least at this point. And the reader is left kind of wondering, like, hey, what happened to Mephibosheth? Why, why did he treat David so poorly in his hour of need? But eventually, David will come back to Jerusalem. He's going to win victory over Absalom. And when David comes back, he's going to meet all these different people who, you know, denied him, betrayed him, did these things against him. And Mephibosheth is one of them. And my feeling, there's a couple different opinions about this. Some people think that Mephibosheth really was in the wrong. And then others think that Mephibosheth actually was in the right, that Ziba was lying in order to get a position with David. And I'm in that camp. I think that Mephibosheth was pure-hearted towards David. And if you would look with me in 2 Samuel 19, just a couple chapters after this, I want you to see this with your own eyes. I don't want to wait until we get to chapter 19 to redeem Mephibosheth because I don't want you thinking bad thoughts about this guy for a few weeks until we get to chapter 19. I think that he was innocent before David. And here's why. Six reasons all listed out in 2 Samuel 19, verse 24 to 30. When David came back, it says in verse 24, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. Look at his appearance. This to me is the first evidence. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day when the king departed until the day he came back in safety. So the first kind of evidence was just his outward appearance. You know, he he couldn't like let David leave and then, you know, be doing his nails and trimming his beard and like getting ready for them to crown him. And then all of a sudden hear, oh man, David's coming back. We actually lost. I'm not getting the kingdom. This isn't working out. What do I do? I got to grow my beard out real quick, make my nails all nasty. No, they were already grown. It was all, everything was all grown out. It was like physical evidence that he had been in mourning from the day that David departed. And then he goes on in verse 25, it says, and when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here's a second evidence, his own testimony. He said, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle the donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. So that was a second evidence, just his own testimony. This is what Ziba did. It lines up with what Ziba said, at, at least. Another evidence is found at the end of verse 27, his submission to David's will. He said, but my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. 
And then in verse 28, another evidence is thankfulness to David. He said, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the king. But you set your servant among, among those who eat at your table. What further right then uh, have I then to cry to the king? So he just is saying, I'm very thankful to you for everything you've done for me. And the king said in verse 29, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. This is another evidence. It was just kind of David's lack of conviction. He heard what Mephibosheth said, and he's like, you know, I don't know if you're right. I don't know if Ziba's right, but you're at least putting some doubt in my mind as to whether or not I made the right decision about Ziba. I can't figure it out, so you guys divide the land. Now, if Mephibosheth had been the scoundrel that Ziba said he was, I think he would have responded like Ziba and said, oh, thank you, I'll take it. But instead, in verse 30, Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. That was his response. To me, that is the nail in the coffin of proof that this guy did not want to turn from David, but that his servant had betrayed him. He just says, look, I don't even care about the land. I don't want it. I don't need the servant. I don't need the stuff. I'm just happy that David is here. All I want is David. I just want to sit at his table. I just want to be with him. He's the guy that I want on the throne, not myself. So again, I've already told you there's people who think that maybe Mephibosheth was in the wrong. I'm trying to tell you very clearly, I am not in that camp. I think that he was in the right. I'm trying to build my case. Maybe you're convinced, maybe you're not. But if you are, then you can handle this next point. There are times where we just get it wrong. There are times where we just make the wrong determination. We see what we see, we hear what we hear, like David when he heard Ziba and heard the first argument. He answered before hearing the other side of the story, which is never wise. And he made that determination. He, he couldn't see the whole thing, but he had, he had misjudged this man. This happens sometimes in Scripture, where God's people, God's servants with Good intentions make a wrong decision about another human being. You might remember in Galatians chapter 2, the little infamous episode where Peter and Barnabas, who both loved the Gentile world, they believed that the gospel should be preached to the Gentile world in an unadulterated, unfiltered kind of way. You don't have to become Jewish to become Christian. They totally believed that, but they got to a point where one day they saw all these Jewish believers eating food by themselves away from the Gentile part of the church. And they kind of got up and they thought, well, we're Jews also. And so they went and did that. And with their outward actions, they were communicating, you are not as clean as we are. And Paul really despised what they did. And so he rebuked them in front of everyone. But they made for a moment a wrong decision about other believers. They, they knew in their heart there was no difference between them and their brothers in Christ who were not Jewish uh, by race, but for a moment they got caught up. The Corinthian church, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians on Tuesday nights. We're going to actually finish it this Tuesday night. And the Corinthian church, remember for a season, they rejected the ministry of Paul the apostle. That's like a real bad move. You shouldn't do that. There was a season where they looked down upon him and his ministry. You might remember Paul himself. There was a time where 
he and Barnabas came to a crossroads in their missionary journeys, and Barnabas had a nephew named John Mark that he wanted to bring on their next journey, and Paul was a little bit upset that Mark had left them on their first missionary journey, so Paul put his foot down and said, no, this guy can't go with me. He's not useful to me in the ministry. But you know what Paul said when he wrote one of his pastoral epistles to Timothy? He said, send Mark, for he is useful to me in the ministry. You see, Mark eventually came around, and he wrote the gospel of Mark. He became very useful to the Lord. But Paul had seen something in him that was actually not accurate. I mean, I can understand why he didn't want to serve with him in that way at that time, but a little bit of misjudging, perhaps. There's even a story in the book of Acts chapter 8 where Philip, one of the first deacons in the church, goes down to Samaria. He's preaching the gospel, and all this cool stuff is happening. All these people are getting saved and stuff like that. And the town sorcerer also got saved, this guy named Simon. Everybody thought he was a big deal and stuff like that. He got saved, and he kind of became uh, Philip's sidekick for a little while. He's following P- uh, Philip around and stuff like that. And then Peter gets there to kind of check in on everything. Wow, what's happening down here in Samaria? He comes there and Simon asks Peter, can I purchase from you the gift to give the Holy Spirit to people? And uh, Peter <laughs> did not like that at all. And so he rebuked him. He called him a son of the devil and that his heart was filled with darkness and all of that, it becomes very clear that Simon was not a converted man. But there he is for a while, just kind of like operating as Philip's sidekick. You see, all throughout Scripture, there are times where God's people make a wrong determination about someone else. It is difficult to see someone accurately and truthfully. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 14, he said, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. What what Paul is saying there is actually rather enlightening. He's saying, look, when someone comes along with like a demonic doctrine, it's not always going to be the case that they look like the emperor from the original Star Wars, you know? And they just come out all creepy looking or something like that. And you're like, wow, don't listen to that guy because look at him. He's got the hood and he's got lightning bolts coming out of his fingertips. That's bad, you know, kind of thing. No, they'll come out, they'll look nice, they'll be an angel of light is what he's saying. It's sometimes difficult for us to have that discernment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. I think that's exactly what David was dealing with right here. He was dealing with a man named Ziba who came outwardly in sheep's clothing, but inwardly he was a ravenous wolf. And David misjudged this man. But in the midst of that, God was faithful. God still used David's life. You see, there's no chance that you or I am going to always judge every single doctrine and philosophy and thought that comes across our plate or our path perfectly and well. We're going to make mistakes. You know, in ministry, I've been serving the Lord for 20-something years now, and there have been times where I have seen people that I just thought, Man, the future is so bright for this person. They, 
God's hand is on their life. They have a call of God upon their lives. They are definitely going to be a force for the kingdom. And then within a short period of time, things just begin to turn. And I begin to wonder, I don't even know if this person actually knows the Lord. And then there have been other people that I've thought, well, I don't know. I don't know if they're know if they're saved or not, you know, and then over time I begin to discover, man, this person, God is powerfully using their lives. And unfortunately, there have been times I've misjudged, but fortunately, God is faithful. And he just continues to work and move, and he would continue to work in David's life is the point that I'm trying to make. God never makes a wrong decision. God always sees clearly. Now, the story goes on to a, a next meeting in verse 5, and it says, When King David came to Baharim, so he's still on his way out of Jerusalem, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul. So remember, David had replaced Saul. He hadn't displaced Saul, but he'd replaced Saul. And so this guy has kind of held a grudge for a long time. His name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. That was the curse that Shimei was pronouncing. It's not that he's saying cuss words. It's that he's pronouncing a curse upon David. He's saying, you know, your life should be damned. You must depart from Jerusalem, and I am putting that uh, upon you. Then Abishai, verse 9, the son of Zariah said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king let me go over and take off his head. So David had some real interesting guys that were on his team. Abishai is one of them. I've already told you because we saw him in a previous episode that all three times that Abishai speaks in the Bible, he's request, he requests of David that he can kill somebody. Like that's, that's his thing. You know, every time he talks, can I kill him? Can I kill him? Can I kill him? The question, of course, is what's David going to say? I mean, this guy is throwing rocks at him, cursing him. And what he's saying is, this is interesting. I'm sure David on his way out had this feeling like, man, I kind of brought this on myself. You know, I sinned with Bathsheba, Uriah, the whole thing. This guy comes out and he's throwing stones and he's pronouncing curses, but he doesn't say anything about Uriah. He doesn't say anything about Bathsheba. He doesn't say anything about that. What he's talking about is Saul. And he's... He, found, he finds fault in David for taking Saul's place. He's saying, Saul's blood is on your hands. David had had nothing to do with Saul in his death. So in this matter that Shimei is cursing him over, David is totally innocent. What's he going to do? Is he going to say to Abishai, hey, I know you want to take off his head, but I'd rather do the honors myself. Is he going to say, go for it? Is he going to say, no, but let's curse him in return? What's he going to say? It's going to be none of those. Let's see what he says in verse 10. It says, but the king said in verse 10, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Now, just a reminder, Zariah was his sister. 
So these are his nephews. So he's like talking about his sister's sons. He's like, man, these nephews of mine, they are crazy. If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. Flinging dust was kind of an Old Testament way when you threw the dust in the air and it was like landing on you or landing on the person that you were cursing. It was kind of like a way of saying, I want you to be buried now. I want you to die now, and I'm helping you get buried right now. And the king, verse 14, and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And so when they get to the Jordan River, it says, and there he refreshed himself. Now, this to me is really fascinating, the way that David handled this cursing from Shimei. He had this belief in his heart that God was providentially dealing with his life and that God could even use this evil man with evil words to chasten him, to discipline him, and to produce some good in his life. In fact, it seems like even as he's speaking in response to Abishai, David becomes convinced of this. Notice in verse 10, he says, if he is cursing, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. But then when you get to the end of verse 11, he says, leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. So he starts out, you know, with that kind of suggestion, if the Lord has told him to do this, but then he becomes convinced. He says, you know, I I really believe that God has told this man to come out. I believe that this man is a a pawn in the greater scheme of God's providential dealings with humanity. And that what this man says is going to be used by the living God to shape me, to mold me, to develop my character and my life. I believe that God is going to use this in my life for some kind of great good. I think David would have agreed with what Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50 to his brothers. Remember, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery, and then Joseph, God God had ordained him and, and put him as the number two man in all of Egypt, and eventually they were reunited, and they had peace together, but then their dad died, and after their dad died, when Jacob died, Israel, when their dad died, all the brothers were like, oh, shoot, it's going down now. He's going to get his revenge on us because dad is dead. He, he wouldn't touch us while dad was alive, but now dad's dead. And he looked at his brothers and he says, no, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You had this evil intention in your heart, this thing that you were trying to do that would bring something negative into my life, but God was actually using what you were doing to bring negative out of my life to produce something good, not just in my life, but in your life and in all of the people of Israel. And David, I think, would have agreed with that sentiment from Joshua. He believed that God was working all things together for good in his life. 
And I want you to see just how he got through this cursing from this man, Shimei. He believed that God was in control of it. And I should mention that he, in this process, is a superior being cursed by an inferior. Uh, This is not someone who is suffering abuse who is inferior to a superior. This is a man who, he's saying, I can handle this. This man is lower than I am. Notice also, though, that he could handle it because he compared Shimei to a bigger problem. He said in verse 11 to his servants, he said, my own son seeks my life. Why, why, Why would I bug out about this guy? Why would I freak out about this guy when my son is stealing the throne right now in Jerusalem? This is a small problem in comparison with the big thing that is happening. Sometimes I have to remember that just in my own life. You know, as a pastor, it's, you know, people getting saved, people getting discipled, stuff happening. And then there's like one little problem, you know, that I just get fixated on, you know, like, oh man, you know, and the Lord's like, hey, you got to remember the big picture. David, remember the big picture. He's like, man, we're at war right now. There's this thing that Absalom is doing to me. And then also he believed in the future goodness of God. He said, it may be that the Lord will repay me with good. Now, Shimei in the Bible is one of a long list of stone throwers. There came a time in the life of Jesus where the religious leaders found a woman that was caught in adultery. They ignored the man that she was in adultery with. It was the height of hypocrisy, but they took the woman and they brought her before Jesus. She said, the law says that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus brilliantly and beautifully responded, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And he stooped down and he began to write on the ground. And this has caused a couple thousands of years of speculation about what he wrote on the ground. If we just have a field day with it, we love it. Like it doesn't, but it doesn't say. So we guess all day long, but we have no idea. He started writing in the ground. He could have been playing hangman for all we know. It doesn't, doesn't say, okay. But he started writing on the ground. I believe the Holy Spirit just started moving in that hostile environment. And the oldest accuser left first, and one by one, all the way down to the youngest, they all departed until it was only Jesus with the onlooking crowd, the non-accusing onlooking crowd. And Jesus then looked up and he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they're not here. They've departed. And he said then, neither do I condemn you. In other words, he who's without sin, let him throw the first stone. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, I qualify. I could throw the stone at you, but I'm not going to. And he says, go and sin no more. It's a word of forgiveness mixed with grace and a desire for her sanctification. Go and sin no more. I'm not going to condemn you because in Christ there is no condemnation, but I also want your sanctification. I want you to grow. Go and sin no more. This is beautiful to us because this is what we need from the Lord. I'm sure that David, as he departed from Jerusalem, and this whole thing is happening, he probably felt like, I brought this on myself. You know, I failed as a leader, I sinned before God, I should not have done the things that I've done, and now Shimei comes out, he's throwing stones and throwing dirt in the air, and he's like, David says, I deserve this, God is making it happen in my life, I deserve this, but, and I'm sure you've felt, I know I've 
felt that way at times in my own life. Man, I deserve this. I'm sure that there have been times in your own life where you almost wish someone would rise up and just persecute you like this because it would kind of bring a little bit of like, well, yeah, I kind of got it coming and I'm just so glad I could like experience some consequences because, man, I failed. But the Lord comes along and he gives his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. But, but David just saw the sovereign hand of the Lord. Now, the next movement of the story is rather lengthy, and I don't have a lot of comments to make about it, except just to kind of read the story to you and show you what happened. We flash back, not, from, not to David, but back to Absalom in Jerusalem. And, and just to remind you, what we saw last week was that David sent his friend Hushai into Jerusalem to, to be a subversive, to overturn the council of Ahithophel for him. And, and that's what we're going to see in this little section. So it says in verse 15, it says, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. They just kind of walked right into Jerusalem. No fighting, no war. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Hushai's got this whole cover story where he's acting like he's allegiant to Absalom. And Absalom, verse 17, said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be. And with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom, verse 20, said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Remember, Ahithophel was David's advisor, but he defected to Absalom. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, verse 21, Go in to your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. This is grotesque. It was also predicted by God. God had said in 2 Samuel 12, verse 11, in his discipline of David, he said, I'll raise up evil against you from your own house and take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. And so Absalom was from David's house and also his neighbor. And so this was a fulfillment of that prediction from God. Now in verse 23, it says, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. This is a way of saying that when Ahithophel spoke, it was considered divine inspiration. Okay, now, I just want you to pull out of, you know, Israelite culture and Old Testament customs and all that and just think about 2018, your world, and think about just people in your life. There are philosophies, beliefs, theories, concepts that people in your life that you know, that you love, that you would love to have their hearts opened up to the gospel, you'd love for them to become believers, 
But there are people in your life who they have received other counsel, other words, other theories, other philosophies that to them are, they consider it divinely inspired stuff. And they consider the word of God, the gospel, to be human devices of human origin. You know, the, the creation of human beings. And the, and the, the battle, the, the struggle is, okay, I want these people to think of the word and the gospel as something that is divine and to reject some of the thoughts of the age. And the question that I want you to ask is, how could those people come to that kind of conclusion? How could their minds and their hearts be turned? The answer, your answer to that question is important. Some people would answer that question by saying, once the church is holy enough, or once the church is loving enough, or once the church is on mission enough, then human beings are bound to receive. Now, look, I think the church should strive for holiness and strive for love, and strive to live on the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. Don't hear me say anything otherwise here this morning. But those are not the things, ultimately, that will lead to that conversion of the heart. God must involve himself in that human's mind and in that human's heart. And I want you to see that from the outflow of this story in chapter 17. So we're going to see how the council is overturned. So let's read it again together. Verse 1 of chapter 17. He says, moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men. So this is his counsel to Ahithophel. He says, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Ahithophel, his advice is pretty basic. He just says, look, David's on the run. He's confused. He's discombobulated. Everybody's just kind of running for their lives. So, you know, give me a couple Apache helicopters, and uh, I'll just cruise in. It'll be a surgical strike on one man. That's all we need. We'll get that one guy, we'll reunite the nation, boom, we'll move on. That was his advice. It was actually a good plan. Then Absalom, verse 5, said, call Hushai the the Archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. So let's, you know, let's get, I got two counselors, let's hear what Hushai said. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken, we shall... Uh, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. And Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear 
For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. What Hushai is doing is he's appealing to the fear embedded in Absalom and all his men of David. You've got to remember, Absalom was David's son. So he'd grown up having people come up to him, you know, when he was like a little guy, you know, they'd come up to him, they'd like squeeze his cheek and they'd be like, I was with your dad out in the field with Goliath. You know, and they tell him the story like he was just a teenager and he ran out there and he cut the guy's head off after striking his head with a stone and he's standing there like this, you know. And like he's hearing these stories his whole life. He knows his dad is undefeated in war. He's an expert. And so as Hushai is like telling this story to Absalom and everybody there, they're like, oh yeah, that's right. If we go down and we lose real quick, then all the men in Israel are going to freak out like, man, we can't fight against David and their hearts will melt. So he's, he's appealing to their fear. But then he appeals to his vanity in verse 11. Look at this. He says, but my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. That's a way of saying from north to south as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. Don't send Ahithophel. Go yourself with your hair flowing and everything. It's going to be beautiful. So we shall come, verse 12, upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. And if he withdraws withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom, verse 14, and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For, or because, the Lord had ordained to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The author is trying to give us a little peek into what's going on behind the scenes. God is involved. God is working. God is moving. He's the author of this. So this helps us understand in our modern era what Paul said in places like 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25, where, you know, there's different views about the gospel. There's a he, he, in his day, there was the Jewish view and there was the Gentile or the Greek view The Jews wanted signs or miracles. The Greeks wanted wisdom. And both of those were stumbling blocks to the gospel. But he says that the quote-unquote foolishness of God is wiser than men and the quote-unquote weakness of God is stronger than men. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 25. God must involve himself in human hearts is what we're seeing. All right, now let's end by just seeing how this all wraps up this little uh, episode. It says, then Hushai, verse 15, said to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, these were also guys on David's side, thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. These are the sons of the priests. And a female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. So the way it worked was Hushai would tell the priests, the priest would tell a servant girl, the servant girl would tell the priest's sons, and the 
priest's sons would run and tell David what was happening. But a young man, verse 18, saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, where are Ahamaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they have gone over the brook of water. So she lied to them to cover for the priest's son. Some people have a real problem with her doing that. I don't. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So Ahithophel, he saw the handwriting on the wall, so to speak. He realized because his counsel was not followed that Absalom was going to lose and David was going to return. And when David returned, Absalom was going to be like number one on David's hit list. And so he realized like, man, I got I to gotta go. And so he did something that he should not have done, but he took his own life. Then David, verse 24, came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. Are you thoroughly confused by that statement, all these names? It's another way of saying that Amasa, who ran Absalom's army, was cousins with Joab, who ran David's army. They were family. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, verse 27, Shobai the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Makir the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat, for they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. This is the provision of God for David and his men. He just takes care of them as they're out there in the wilderness. So through this whole story, you see the hand of God providing, discipling, changing counsel. We see the hand of the Lord. So let's pray and ask the Lord to put his hand upon our lives. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.